You're listening to Ari Snapshots with Jessica Strauss. Each month we chat about the science behind the weeds and decode some of the trickier concepts which crop up. Welcome to Ari Snapshots. I'm Jessica Strauss and on today's Ari Snapshots we are catching up with researcher Dr Mahima Krishnan. So as a reliance on pre-emergent herbicides for both broadleaf and grass species is increasing, it's essential to understand the dynamics of weed herbicide interactions in the field. So Dr Mahima Krishnan and her colleagues from University of Adelaide in collaboration with Ari are in the process of studying populations of summer weeds to help predict and help mitigate any future resistance that may develop by implementing appropriate herbicide application strategies. So as mentioned, this project is in collaboration with RE and University of Adelaide. Funding is coming from GRDC. And I'm lucky enough to have Mahima join me now in person, which is rare because you're over from Adelaide at the moment visiting. How are you going? Good, thank you, Jess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Now, firstly, let's get a bit of background. It's the first time we've had you on the podcast before, and this is a collaboration with Ari, but we don't know anything about you, so I'd love for you to give a bit of background on yourself for the listeners. Okay. I am a molecular biologist, and I have a background in medical science, actually. I did a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Biology at the University of Adelaide, where the focus was looking at animals and humans and health and so initially my plan was to get into cancer research but then I found that you know there was also avenues in agricultural science and a lot of headway to be made in that space so um, I decided to do a PhD in trying to understand what causes abiotic stress so abiotic stress is basically drought stress frost stress anything that's not caused by an organism and my research project was looking at trying to improve salt tolerance in cereals. Mm. Uh, I had a model crop, which was barley, and we looked at certain genes that are important in conferring salt tolerance. And there was a lot of literature out there that showed specific genes that could improve salt tolerance of plants. And so the idea was to use these genes and have it in barley and see how it you know, impacted the barley's yeah. stress tolerance. And so I should also say that this was an exercise in trying to commercialise GM crops. So the novelty about this project was using not external genes because, you know, there was a climate, and probably still is, but it's getting better, where people were very, very sceptical about GM crops. Yeah. And so the idea was to use barley genes in barley instead of using foreign genes, and that way you could kind of make it a bit more palatable but it was still like you know it was a proof of concept type project so yeah I, I finished my PhD I got my doctorate and I was really interested in helping agriculture being more efficient because I felt that it, it was about helping agriculture be more sustainable basically and so a lot of times in science and where you end up in research is about being in the right place at the right time so I had just submitted my thesis. I initially had a plan to have a bit of a break and a holiday, but having an intense work routine like in a PhD, you get used to just constantly thinking about things, constantly doing things, mm. experiments and being productive. And I had about two weeks and I had enough. So <laughs> you had um, your holiday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going a bit crazy. So yeah. I needed to do something and it just so happened that in – Chris Preston's group, one of his senior postdocs, was about to go on maternity leave. 
and I just send out an email at the right time. And that's how I got into Chris's group, not as a postdoc, but just as a person who was helping out with some of the work and just trying to cover the, you know, vacuum that this postdoc had left. And the postdoc is Jenna Malone. She's a senior postdoc and she's back and she's active. So slowly got into weeds and in my PhD, a lot of the science that I was doing was very much lab-based. So it wasn't really something that was, I wasn't aware of what was happening in the field. So I didn't have a big picture about all the different aspects of farming. It was agriculture for us, not farming. So coming into weeds, it was a completely, you know, learned different learning curve, steep learning curve. And it was interesting to see the amount of the complexity that goes into farming. And it was very applied as well, which I really enjoyed because the work that I was doing was quite basic. And so as I was trying to understand what was happening in terms of herbicide resistance in weeds, I was constantly harassing Chris about an idea that I would have and eventually he just got sick of me coming up with <laughs> random ideas, which were probably not useful in any way to him. And GRDC had just introduced the five-year funding cycle. So he offered me a job to be a postdoc in his group. Amazing. And, yeah. And of course, I took it up and haven't really looked back. So the first sort of project we started was Mechanism of Resistance and Mechanism and Evolution of Resistance. And um, I had started on that but then there was an opportunity that came up through New Farm to study 240 resistance in South Thistle or Soncus oleraceus. And yeah, that's kind of led me on a path to where I am now. Yeah, and we're going to find out about some of the results that have come out of that work into 24D resistance now. But yeah, we're lucky to have you. We're glad that you made the leap from medicine to uh, agriculture. And it's, uh, So you've, you've got some initial findings uh, from this work that you've done on 24D regarding the underlying mechanisms of 24D resistance in Indian hedge mustard, wild radish and south thistle populations. Uh, walk me through what you found so far. Okay, so just quickly, um, for a long time you know, we haven't really seen that much resistance developed to 2,4-D. And where we did have resistance developed to 2,4-D, we weren't really sure what was causing it. There had been studies that were showing that it was, it seemed to be a single trait that was involved and it seemed to be a dominant trait involved. So this is kind of getting into the genetics of it. But it basically meant that, you know, in a plant that has a single genome, one from one parent, another from another parent, just like us, we get one from our mum, one from our dad, and when we talk about something that's dominant, if we have a gene or an allele from your mum, you just need that one copy to see an effect. So brown eyes, for instance, that is a dominant trait. So if you have a blue-eyed parent and you have a brown-eyed parent, the child that would come about would be mostly brown-eyed. So in that sense, you only need one parent to have a resistance trait. And then, especially in cross-pollinating species, if they did if a susceptible parent did get pollen from a resistant parent, the progeny would, that would res- result would become resistant. Yeah. So in that case, we knew that this was a dominant sort of trait and we also knew that it was single trait. Then for a long time, it was postulated that there might be something in the auxin pathway because 240 is an auxin and auxin is a hormone that's present in the plant. 240 is part of the class of auxins and in the plant, the plant hormone auxin is involved in a whole bunch of responses. So 
growth, development, morphology, so the architecture of the plant and how it develops, the shape of it, and also response to different environmental cues. So, you know, if you've got some toxins in the soil that you need to move away from and the root curves away, that's auxin, that's, you know, um, driving that sort of growth. So it's quite a dynamic and complex process. So, you know, understandable that people didn't have a clue about what was causing this 240 resistance. Mm. But then there was a paper that was published in 2018 by a group in the States, Leclerc being the lead author, and they had been working on these populations of kosher, which had been known to be highly resistant to dicamba. And a few papers that had actually been published about what might be causing this, but 2018 was the first time they actually found a target site mutation. And this was in a gene family that is involved in auxin response. And they found that there was a highly conserved sort of region. So when I talk about something that's highly conserved, it means that no matter what plant you look in, as far as this gene space is concerned, it's always the same sequence. The sequence never changes because if it does change, it could be problematic for the plant. So they found this mutation that caused a change in the protein, which meant that it didn't behave in the same way that it would normally. And it didn't seem to affect so much. The plants, you know, seemed to cycle through their internal auxins fine, but where it came to 2,4-D and dicamba as well, the plants didn't seem to respond and therefore, you know, weren't susceptible anymore. And then um, a couple of years later, there was another finding in Indian hedge mustard where they found a mutation in the same gene family, but a different gene member. And this was a different type of mutation, but mutation all the same. And they discovered that this was, it had to do with how these proteins interacted with other proteins that was causing this. So I'm not going to get too technical here, but we have used that as the basis to look for mutations in these gene families. So the gene family is called AUX-IAA. And Soncus is a bit of a complicated beast because it has not just one genome, it has multiple genomes. But the advantage of working with Soncus is that it's a self-pollinating species. So what we did was we asked somebody to give us a sequence because the sequence genome sequences are usually publicly available, but this one was still fairly rudimentary and it wasn't publicly available. But it was a collaborator of ours who had generated the entire sequence of Soncus. <laughs> yeah, which was, you know, <laughs> serendipity in science. Yeah. It's always a thing. Yeah. So... He had very generously shared it with us. This is Dr. James Harrowood up at University of Queensland and uh, another friend and colleague of mine who is at the Wake Research Institute, Dr. Julian Schwert. He's a bioinformatician. He helped me predict some AUX IA genes from this sequence and we went hunting for this conserved region in all the different genes in Soncus. And, you know, again, I was lucky that I managed to find a mutation And the interesting thing is we have since found the same gene member to be mutated in another related species. So Soncus is part of the sunflower family and another uh, species in the sunflower family that was also 240 resistant has got a mutation in the same gene. So it was kind of good confirmation that this is probably legitimate. We have also looked at multiple populations that have this resistance. They also have this gene mutation and the plants that are susceptible, and we have multiple populations that are susceptible, don't have the gene mutation. Mm. And we have also generated some F2 lines, so we made some crosses with a susceptible parent and a resistant parent, 
and looked at the progeny that resulted from that. And those progeny that have an elevated resistance to 2,4-D had this mutation as well. So it seems to be coming up, you know, and it's correlating with this resistance. So we're going to be studying this a bit more and characterising this gene functionally. But yeah, so, you know, we seem to be convinced that there is something with this AUKS IAA gene family that seems to be underpinning this 240 resistance. And we have found additional mutations in wild radish, which are 240 resistant. Some of them have the same mutation that was found in Indian hedge mustard that was published in 2020. There are also other Asterisee uh, species, so the sunflower family species that have mutations, novel mutations that we found in AUKS IAA. So, yeah, there seems to be a story developing now mm. in this space where we're starting to understand what's causing this resistance and the importance about finding these mutations that are causing, you know, that are the underlying mechanism for this resistance. It means that, you know, we can try and understand how these chemistries interact with these mutations. So the plants have a varied response to different chemistries from the group four, a lot of uh, phenoxies. So with Sonkus especially, it's a low-level resistance. So where it's got some resistance to 2,4-D, it might be a little bit more sensitive to another group 4. So it's something that we're looking into. So, you know, this is how something that's basic in the lab can lead to more management strategies. So now we know what's causing this 2,4-D resistance. What else can we use? So watch this space. Yeah, um, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Well, we'll definitely keep in the loop with how it all evolves and uh, get some more information from you uh, in a little while on, on if you found anything further and, and if you've got any prescriptions for people. Um, but you've also been looking at, uh, you've got a, an, a study looking at summer weeds and pre-emergent herbicides. And uh, this is, uh, yeah, not as far along as this 2,4-D research, but we're going to get a bit of an overview from that as well. Can you just uh, run a through what's happening with this particular area in the summer weed section? Yeah, so part of the reason for why we're looking at summer weeds and, I mean, summer weeds are a problem, they're an emerging issue and pre-emergent herbicides, some of the chemistries that are being developed, how they work over time. So we're trying to look at, you know, whether these chemistries can persist in terms of their efficacy for controlling the summer weeds over successive treatments and generations. So the easiest way to explain it is we're just trying to see if these plants develop tolerance or resistance over multiple generations of selection. So we do a whole bunch of sprays at, at different rates and select for survivors that come out of these rates and then we collect seeds from them. We treat those seeds in the next generation and then so on and so forth. And then we try and understand if there is any sort of elevated response in terms of tolerance or resistance to these herbicides, why that is. So whether it's a metabolic thing involving P450s or whether there might be some genetic basis for it. So the summer weeds that we're looking at are feathertop roads, barnyard grass, uh, flaxleaf fleabane and sonchus and also we've thrown Indian hedge mustard in there. So with the exception of Indian hedge mustard, some of the populations that we're working on in the other species do have some glyphosate resistance as well and they have been collected from the field as well so this is not the glyphosate resistant hasn't been selected for it's just been found there so it's just to I have an idea about how 
the glyphosate resistant populations respond as well over generations. And so far what we see is that whether or not these plants have glyphosate resistance doesn't really affect their response to these pre-emergent herbicides. And yeah, they, are, right. um, they are also, by nature, they are susceptible to the pre-emergent herbicides. But we are starting to see a slight shift in tolerance. Not a great one, and it's not, a, not anything to beat your chest about, but uh, the trend seems to be developing that, you know, some of these plants might have an elevated response if you select them over successive generations. Okay. But these are plants that survive at low rates. At the higher rates, they're all controlled, and at the label rates, they're all controlled. So, yeah. Well, that's good. And, and just so people have an idea, uh, what are the herbicides that you're focusing on for the grass weeds? So for the grass weeds, we're looking at dual gold, so esmetolachlor and Viraxa for the grass weeds. And for the broad leaves, we're looking at uh, mesotrion and Viraxa. Okay, very good. And what kind of timeline do you anticipate you'll have more findings to share with us, Mima? Well, I guess I could keep going <laughs> and, uh, you know, it depends on when I get stopped really, but we, we're going to try and get them to a level where we, if we do see a response, we'll try and, you know, kind of elaborate more on what might be causing this elevated response. But it is more about selection over successive generations. So, and then also seeing whether there's any sort of metabolic component involved in increasing the tolerance threshold of these populations. So until we get something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, we'll keep in the loop with you, Mahima. Is there anything else that you'd like to end on or share with the audience about your work that we haven't covered? Watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> All right, well, lovely to chat with you and meet you in person. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.